0: So, what do you do with your discouragement? Where do you go when you're shaken to the core, when you're in the midst of just this moment of chaos, when disillusionment settles over you? I I know that the faith and life of Nelson Mandela um, is interesting and complex. If you're unfamiliar with who he is, he was the first black president in South Africa. Uh, But it's clear that... In the challenges he faced, he faced them with something of a deep resting in Christ as well. He started his political activism because, well, in his country at the time, only people with white skin could vote. And that was a small minority of people. And he, like many others, said, this isn't right, this isn't just. And he began his activism to bring the rest of the population to have full rights as citizens. Now, Mandela was so committed to this idea of, of getting rid of, uh, of, of racism in his country, of this inequality, and yet, not unlike Moses in chapter 5 of the book of Exodus, as we saw, when things, when people step out against injustice, things often get worse before they get better, sometimes much worse, and that was the case certainly for Mandela. He ended up spending 27 years in prison 27 years of wondering, how will this end? Is this it for me? Was it worth it? Uh, my wife and I visited Robben Island uh, a few years ago. This is the jail just off of Cape Town where political prisoners were kept. And as we did the tour, they showed us this pile of rocks and kind of like a rock quarry. And, and the, the tour guide was explaining to us that um, those who were prisoners there, including Mandela, would be, that the jailer would say, That pile of rocks, you need to move it from there to there. Go, all day long. That's what they did. They just moved piles of rocks. The next day, move the pile of rocks from there to over there. That was their next day. What do you do in the face of that kind of demoralizing, meant to shake you and break you down? How do you keep going with that kind of discouragement? The question for us is really, how do you deal with yours? This morning, we're picking up on the book of Exodus. God's people have been brutally oppressed, and now things have gotten worse since Moses has gone to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And then Moses concludes chapter 5 with these words to God. He says, you have not delivered your people at all. So now, picking up in chapter 6, I'm going to invite my friend Ken to come and read the text for us. And I pray that you would open your hearts as we hear these words. And yes, if you're wondering, as you flip in your Bible, are we going to read the genealogy? I wrestled with that question, and the answer is, yes, we are. So buckle up.
1: <laughs> Here, again. Thank you, Dave. Chapter 6, Promises of Deliverance. Then the Lord told Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave this land. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. And I reaffirmed my covenant with them. Under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan, where they were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel, who are now slaves to the Egyptians, and I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from opposition and will rescue you from your slavery to Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give to you it to you as your own possession." I am the Lord. So Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said. But they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go back to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and tell him to let the people of Israel leave this country. My Lord, Moses objected. My own people won't listen to me anymore. How can I expect Pharaoh to listen? I'm such a clumsy speaker. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them orders for the Israelites and for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and now the ancestors of Moses and Aaron. These are the ancestors of some of the clans of Israel. The sons of Reuben, Israel's oldest son, were Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carme. Their descendants became the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jaman, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal. Shal's mother was a Canaanite woman. Their descendants became the clans of Simeon. These are the descendants of Levi, as listed in their family records. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived to be 137 years old. The descendants of Gershon included Libni and Shimel, each of whom became the ancestor of a clan. The descendants of Kohath included Amran, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived to be 133 years old. The descendants of Merari included Mali and Mushi. These are the clans of Levites as listed in their family records. Amran married his father's sister, Jacobed, and she gave birth to his sons, Aaron and Moses. Amron lived to be 137 years old. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elezaphan, and uh, Sithri. Aaron married Elishabah, the daughter of Aminadab, and sister of Nashon, and she gave birth to his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. Their descendants became the clans of Korah. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putih, and she gave birth to his son, Phinehas. These are the ancestors of the Levite families listed according to their clans. The Aaron and Moses named in this list are the same ones to whom the Lord said, Lead the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt like an army. It was Moses and Aaron who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, and he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. But Moses argued with the Lord, saying, I can't do it. I'm such a clumsy speaker. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? And these are the words of the Lord.
0: So first, many bonus points to Ken (laughs) for reading through that list of names. Second, it's true, genealogies can be a drag. I know. If you're a Bible reader like me, and I hope you are, or you become one, you will hit lists of names, these genealogies, and I admit to have skipped a few in my day or skimmed over them. But today, we're going to look at at least some of the reasons why this is more than just a speed bump in your reading plan. This is a carefully crafted literary feature that God is going to speak to us through. So let's open our hearts together. Let me pray with us as we begin. Father, uh, we thank you that you inspired this text to be written just as it is, and you intend it through your Spirit's ongoing work to teach us about you, about us, about your plans, and about how to live as your people now. And so we ask, God, that you would give us hearts that are wide open to you, ready to hear and ready to respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the end of... Exodus 5 has Moses complaining to the Lord, but you have not rescued your people at all. Let's just focus in now on verse 1. If you have your Bibles open to Exodus 6, look at the Lord's response. This is where it begins. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. We looked at this last week. Moses is not the hero of this story. He may have thought that when God sent him, somehow he was going to shine. Somehow he was going to be at the forefront of this release. And yet chapter 5 tells us that is not what's going on. And it's becoming abundantly clear. And chapter 6 now tells us it is God, God alone who will free them. But notice God's first move in speaking to Moses' heart. He he goes on to say this in verse 2, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. He uses that name Yahweh that we looked at from chapter 3 where God reveals his name to Moses. And then he reaches back to the past. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty or El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Remember, Moses is deeply discouraged at this point. He's disillusioned. Things are not going according to his plan. He thinks God probably needs a new plan, in fact. But remember back to Exodus 3 again, Yahweh, that name, the name God reveals to Moses in the burning bush. God also says this. He gives him a phrase. He says, I am who I am, or it could be translated, I will be who I will be, which is a reminder that God is saying, I don't fit your boxes. You can't hem me in. You can't pin me down. You don't define me. My name is watch and see. Look at what I'll do next. I, I will be who I will be. So when God says, I am, he's making a statement about how he's going to show up and reveal himself through his actions. I'll show you who I am. So notice, the way God deals with the doubts and fears and discouragements of Moses is to bring him back to his name and to his character. And I think this is something we need to reflect on as well. I like how one pastor put it. He says, when we're afraid, when we're doubting ourselves, when we're suffering, what we need is not a pep talk. What we need is not someone to blow sunshine at us. What we need is a deeper understanding, a more intimate encounter with our God. And that's what Yahweh is giving to Moses in his disillusionment here. A fresh and deepening understanding of God and God's nature, and that is linked to God's promises and how God keeps on keeping his promises. In this series, if you're just joining us now, we've been diving into the question, uh, what do we mean when we say God? Because God is, is it's not a self-referential term, it's, it's a category, and God himself defines who God is. And that's what the book of Exodus, we're saying, is really all about. It's God defining who God is and us learning to see him for who he is. And in verse 7 of our chapter today, we find that this is central to the narrative. It says this, Then, like when God acts powerfully on Israel's behalf, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And that's what we need. That's what we need in our discouragement is to know him. So just look at the promises he makes. In verses 6 to 8, we see seven I will statements, seven promises from God. Now that number seven, again, if you're a Bible reader, that should twig in your mind. You should be hearing um, echoes and, and reverberations back to the Genesis narrative. For God creates six days in this pattern plus one. This seven-day structure is a way of saying things are complete. This is totally done. There's a sense of wholeness and fullness and perfection. So that number seven is kind of a way of gathering up in your arms and saying it's it's done. I've I've got this. I've got you. And so these seven promises, I don't think it's a coincidence that there's that many of them. God will save his people. He will liberate them fully, completely. Look again at these promises. If you have your Bibles open, it's verse 6. Begins like this, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. He begins again just restating his name and then says, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then we have this result statement, then you will know. That I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And then two more promises, and I will bring you to the land that I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. And then finishes again like an inclusio, a bookend. I am the Lord. Notice, I will. God will. It won't be Moses. My outstretched arm, says the Lord. And then notice too, I will. There is a promise of future action that God makes to his people here. A sort of watch, see, look what I'm about to do. And as the story unfolds, and it'll take the next five books of the Old Testament to tell it, as the story unfolds, we find that God makes good on every single one of these promises. And not only then, this first exodus, that we've been talking about throughout this series, this first exodus is actually pointing to an even greater exodus that is to come, where Jesus will lead us out of the darkness and slavery to our own self-centeredness, to those impulses of our hearts, those dark ones that break community apart, break our community with God, with each other, our, ourselves, the rest of creation. And he frees us then from that that heart longing to kind of do things on my own terms. The Bible describes that impulse as sin, as a way of wanting to live with me at the center. And yet God redeems us at great cost to himself. He makes us his own people. He will be our God and he will bring us to a land of promise, to life with him even on the other side of death. Uh, In 1975... Mandela wrote a letter to his, his wife, and, and here's just one little line from it. He says, no axe is sharp enough to cut the soul of a sinner who keeps on trying, one armed with the hope that he will rise even in the end. Again, Mandela's life is complex. His, his faith is, is, is an interesting journey if, as biographers look at it, but he's recognized that he's missed the mark. He calls himself a sinner. Somebody who knows that he hasn't lined up all of his life with the living God. And yet he also knows he's drawing on the forgiveness of God that makes him right and gives him a hope that he can cling to, even a resurrection hope. So the question comes back to us today as well. Like, Are you afraid? Are you doubting yourself? Are you suffering? Are you discouraged? The first thing this text tells us is to look again. Look at the one who loves you, who leads you, to the God who has acted powerfully to rescue out from under the slavery to sin so that you could be at home with him forever. When we do, when we hold on to that promise, we can say with Paul in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings, the things you're going through right now, I consider that those things are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Those moments of hard, those moments of suffering, as Paul points to here, of grappling with those realities. Maybe it's a reality of a loss. Maybe it's a change, like the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the the loss of your health. Maybe it's a question mark about what that will mean or about your future. There is a hope that the story God is telling, it starts back here, Has a glorious future. It's going somewhere. So we remind our hearts God makes good on God's promises in the past, and He will make good on these promises to us as well. Uh, This Wednesday morning, as I was writing this, uh, March 8th was this beautiful sunny day. Still, definitely winter outside, at least up here. It was snow on the ground and it was chilly, but it was beautiful. And it reminded me of March 8th, 2009. uh, a beautiful, fresh snow kind of day when my dad took his last breaths on this earth, on this side of eternity. Yet in this mysterious way that I don't claim to understand in full, he also awoke in God's presence. And he now awaits a resurrection body when King Jesus returns. So the question I, I just bring us back to, this, this promise of inheriting a land that we see Back here is also promised to us that God will make good on bringing heaven and earth back together, where where God will dwell with us. But what if that's true? What if Jesus really was raised in a real body? What if it happened? It means that we will experience that same kind of resurrection. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And that means our fears can be transformed. It doesn't mean they're going to go away altogether now, no but they can be transformed so that we can live with real courage in the real world. And that's what we want to see next here. Now, have you ever wondered why Christian missionaries are so obsessed with, like, building hospitals and orphanages and, like, caring for, for physical needs of, of people in, in, in places where people are suffering? Have you ever noticed that? Like, why not, just, why not just preach the gospel? Isn't that what mission is? Just tell them about Jesus. That, that'll sort everything out. Well, as we saw in the story today, Moses seems to have been encouraged through this encounter with God, hearing God's name again restated, hearing these promises that God makes. It's at least enough for him to get off his seat and to go and to tell the people of Israel these same things. But look again what the narrator says in Exodus 6-9. He says, but they didn't listen because of their discouragement and harsh labor. It's hard for people to hear good news when they're totally overwhelmed, when they're hungry, when life circumstances are crushing them. It's really hard to hear good news when you are hungry, physically exhausted, demoralized. How can you take that news to heart? This tells us something, I think, really significant about how God sends us as bearers of his news in the world. Ultimately, we are holding out the hope of the gospel to people, a hope that there's a a new heavens and a new earth to come, that Jesus loves those whom we speak with, that he has a future and a hope for them, and yet that's often not the first thing that happens in Christian mission. Listen to what Nelson Mandela wrote in his book, Long Walk to Freedom, his autobiography. He's reflecting on his experience of church as a young man. He says, the church was concerned with this world as much as the next. I saw that virtually all the achievements of Africans seem to have come about through through the missionary work of the church. All virtually? Really? He's on the ground. That's his experience. That's a big claim. And he says, what I see of the big changes that are happening is because God's people have loved to step into what God's work is. And they've cared about the real needs of real people even now. So yes, we're called to care deeply for the physical, emotional, and social well-being of those around us, even as we care for and ultimately hold out the hope of the spiritual world, that we hold out the hope of the gospel as well. Mission that is faithful. Has to do both. And and no doubt, in a room this size and, and those who are joining us online as they listen to this, there are people, there are those of you who are disillusioned right now. There are people who are suffering. That hearing good news is maybe even difficult for you. But here's the next thing the text shows us. Even when you can't hear it, even when you can't see it, even when you can't imagine it or feel it, God is still working Some of you need to hear that today. In your situation that you can't see, God is still at work. See, look at the very next verse, verse 10. Then, starts with then. When? When the people of Israel could not hear any good news. When they were totally demoralized. When they, verse 9, could not even hear what Moses had to say. Then, the Lord said to Moses, go Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Do you see what this tells us? It says when God is at work on behalf of those who are disheartened, who are so discouraged they can't even hear the promises, God is still working on their behalf. And he's still working on yours. The promises that God is doing his good work in the lives of those who love him, that are called according to his good purposes. He is still at work for your good, even when you can't see it. Now back to Moses. God tells him to go back to Pharaoh, and so Moses goes back to his sense of inadequacy. Look at the next verse. If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Since I speak with faltering lips, is how the NIV translates it. Um, The Hebrew is, is, is literally this. I am uncircumcised of lips which is kind of weird (laughs) and so the niv what it does is it says okay i I think what moses is saying here brings us back to exodus chapter 4 where moses says i have i you know i i'm i'm not eloquent i can't speak well send somebody else because of this like speech impediment so they're saying okay i think this is more or less equal with that i'm not so sure We've heard this language of uncircumcised already in chapter 4 as well, with that super weird story of where Moses' wife, Zipporah, saves Moses' life by circumcising their son. And God relents, and he doesn't kill Moses. It's a strange story, but we hear this language of circumcision. And so I think something else is going on here. And I think Robert Alter, in his translation, is probably right to say that Moses' expression here isn't just saying, I have a speech impediment. I can't speak with eloquence. No, no. No, I think he's saying something much different than that, much more significant, much more connected to maybe how we feel sometimes. I think it's a deeper sense that he lacks the spiritual fitness for this sacred task. It's not just I can't speak well, it's I'm overwhelmed by the sacredness of this calling. Perhaps he feels unworthy to do what God has asked him. Man, I feel that at times. I think many of us might feel disqualified from getting on with what God has asked. We might feel like, well, you know, I wasn't obedient to that thing that God called me to, or maybe I was only partly obedient to it way back when. Why would he want to use me again in the future? Why would he be calling me now to keep moving on? I I must be disqualified. That's a line of thinking I have heard many times. I think I've heard myself say it to myself. But notice... Moses, we saw last week, he wasn't fully obedient in what God had called him to do in Exodus chapter 5. He wasn't really following what God had asked him to do. And now, he has this sense of, I've blown it. I'm not worthy to do this. I am not cut out for this. So God hears his desire to give up. God basically says, okay, cool. Also, just go do what I asked you to See again, the text tells us something important about us. Number one, God works with us, even when we don't feel worthy to the task. Uh, Gerald, as I shared this with our staff on Wednesday, um, Gerald said, "Hey, well, Do you want a cliche?" And I'm like, "Of course, Gerald. Always. I always want a cliche." And he said, "God doesn't call the qualified; He qualifies the called." And and I think that's I think that's right. God doesn't just call those who are already fully qualified to the task. He calls people and says, I will make you the kind of person to do the task I call you to. Here's the second thing. God made us to be resilient. Man, I, I think this is one of the, the most important things that the people of God need to hear today. We don't need to fold like a lawn chair every time something hard comes up. God is with us. God will call you to do hard things. Really hard things. And he will enable you to do it. He'll give you the strength to do the things he's called you to do. As the saying goes, another cliche, feel the fear and do it anyways. But this isn't just, oh, you can do it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, look at you, dig deep in you. No, it's not. That's the other great thing about this. We get on with doing the hard things God has called us to because it's God's mighty arm that is ultimately at work. So maybe we could say it like this, feel the inadequacy and do it anyways. Feel the sense even of, I'm not worthy to do this, Lord, and do it anyways. If I let my sense of unworthy drive me, I wouldn't be in ministry. I've got reasons why I should be checked out. But like Moses, I've said, I've heard God saying to me over the years, the same kind of thing, yes, you feel inadequate, okay, okay. Go and do what I've asked you to do. And I think that's true for every single follower of Jesus. We walk in his grace. I like how Paul says it in Philippians 3. He says, but forgetting what is behind, forgetting the past, I look forward and I press on to do the things that God has called me to do in Christ Jesus. That's what we do. Maybe you need to do the same, to do some forgetting what lays behind so that you can focus on what's coming up. You know, Lick, uh, at the very end of the last ever Star Wars movie, I think there's nine of them. I could probably ask Bruce and he would tell me that there's nine Star Wars movies. He gives me a thumbs up. I got it right. Great. Uh, my boys were watching the last Star Wars movie this last week, and I walked in just at the end. It's called The Rise of the Skywalker. And Ray, the lead, the lead uh, actor, the lead character, she's back on Tatooine. That's the place of the two sons, right? That's where Luke Skywalker grew up. And, and at the end, she's like digging this hole in the sand, and she's burying Luke and Leia's um, lightsabers in the sand. She's got her own one, and, and there's kind of this interesting scene. What's she doing here? And then as she's, as she's burying them, she hears something to her side and turns, and there's this older lady with this weird, like, camel, llama-ish looking thing with four eyes. It's very strange. It's not even a key detail to the story, but I'm telling you anyways. And the woman then says... There's been no one for so long. Who are you? And so she answers, I'm Ray. But the woman, woman quips back, Ray who? And then you see this pensive look come across Ray's face. Because she isn't quite sure. Who, who am I really? And, and you see this kind of like pensive look come across her face. But something catches her attention of the corner of her eye and and she turns to the left and then she sees this like weird glowy apparition coming on the horizon and it's coming closer and closer and as it comes into focus you can see it's like these sort of maybe holograms. I'm guessing so if it's Star Wars. Is that right? Maybe I don't know. But it's 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 Luke and it's Leia. And they smile at her and, and she sees this look of approval over her and then she turns back to the old woman And she says, Ray Skywalker. You know, lineage is a part of forming that sense of who we are. Who am I? Where am I from? Where do I belong in the world? She identifies herself not just as Ray anymore, but as Ray Skywalker. She points to this lineage and she finds a sense of rootedness, a sense of home in the larger story. And this genealogy that I made Ken read, thank you Ken, again, (laughs) This genealogy ends with this. Two times, there's this kind of statement. It says, it was this Aaron and Moses. And this is the Moses and Aaron. The big idea here, I think, is that this shows where they belong in the larger story of what God is up to. So this genealogy isn't just a speed bump. It's a carefully crafted way to connect their smaller stories to the much bigger story of what God is doing, his story of liberation, his story of promise. Remember, Moses is ready to give up right now. Israel is totally demoralized. They don't want to go forward. It's like, God, you need a better plan. This isn't working. So first, we have to see this. This genealogy, and through it, God is saying, I am still working in this. Things are not out of my control. See, by linking Moses and Aaron to the bigger story... We're reaching back to where God makes this promise to Abraham. This promise in Genesis 15 where he talks about the Exodus. He says, your people, I'm going to make you like the stars of the sky, like the sand on the seashore. There's going to be so many of you, but they're going to end up in slavery in Egypt. And yet he goes on to say, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. God has a work of judgment to do. He has a work of reckoning that the people of Egypt have to go through. These are the people who have been taking Israelite baby boys and flinging them into the Nile. Okay, and God says, they are going to have to reckon with me before they leave, before the people walk free. So the genealogy is saying, relax, I'm very much on track with my plan. Here's the second thing it tells us. The genealogy is a hinge in the story. Up to this point, the focus has been on Moses and his call and his sense of inadequacy. And now this genealogy is this hinge point where basically the rest of the story, there's one key actor and his name is Yahweh. God is gonna intervene on behalf of his people. We're gonna see this over the next uh, few weeks where God is going to do miraculous works to save his people. And so as we heard from Moses in in 6, verse 10, and then again in 6, verse 30, like bookends of this section, Moses is sent to speak to Pharaoh. And again, Moses goes back to his sense of inadequacy for the task. Again, 6.30, he comes back and says, paraphrase, like, if my own people won't listen to me, why would Pharaoh? Why indeed? But this is the key moment in the story. Freedom for, for God's people will not be a function of Moses' ability to persuade it will be utterly a work of God's mighty hand. So Moses may very well not feel up for the task, but he's coming alive to the fact that it's actually God who is going to do the task. And God does. And that same reality is true in our lives. See, in the unfolding story of God, we see how this same feature resonates with the gospel of Jesus Christ in at least two key ways. See, Jesus begins his, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or as other translations have put it, uh, I help us understand what does poor in spirit mean, blessed are those who recognize their need for God. Those who come to the point of knowing, I need a rescuer, I am not self-sufficient, I need God to do it. And as the biblical story moves forward, this same mighty God and mighty hand who promises Moses that by his mighty hand he will free his people, this same God, Yahweh, will become a human in Jesus and his literal hands will be nailed to a cross out of love for you. This act of sacrificial love, that's what frees us. And it's simply through recognizing my need for God and by trusting in it, in what God has done, that's how we are saved. That's how we are brought into a right relationship with God. That's when everything changes when we know it's not about us and it's not by our strength, but by His that frees us. And so it starts there. We look to the cross of Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. With his mighty hands pierced for me and for you. And he's inviting you. This is God's ultimate, I am for you. I'm for you. His great big, you are mine. You are my beloved. And today, James, when you were in the tank, that's what you were saying. You're saying, I am falling back into the loving arms of my God. And I am now in union with him. That's one of the things we'd say baptism is it's union with Christ. It's I am united to him for life now. So maybe, maybe some of you need to think back to your own baptism. Maybe just you need to remember the waters that you went through. There's Exodus imagery all over the waters, by the way. The idea of going through the waters, we'll see that come out in the next weeks as well as a significant part of saying I am united with the Lord. I am his and he is mine forever. Here's the second piece we need to see. We asked the question at the beginning, what do you do with your fear, with your discouragement, with your disillusionment, with your sense of inadequacy? Well, what moves Moses back to his task? It wasn't that the fear has now evaporated, but that he knows afresh who it is he's following, who's standing with him, who will go before him, who will fight for him. And I know it's bugging some of you because you know the Star Wars um, story, You've been wanting to say, but Dave, here's where your analogy breaks down. Ray, she's not actually a Skywalker. She's not really part of the family lineage. Oh, I know. But we too, like Ray, need to make a choice of whom we will be identified with. So how do you answer that question, who are you? Where do you go to answer that question, who am I really? Really? Like Ray, who comes to see herself as a Skywalker, it's through faith in Jesus that we are now adopted into God's family. Through faith, we are told, you are now a part of my team, part of this lineage, part of the God story. So no, your name might not show up in a biblical genealogy that someone skips over when they're going through their reading plan. Your name might not be there, but you are very much a part of that genealogy We, through faith in Jesus, are now a part of that same storyline, as part of that same family. It's like Ricky gave me this image this week, and I stole it because he hates sports analogies. Would that be too strong a word to say? No, it's not at all. No, he said, I'll never use it, so you can use it. Okay, I'll take that. It's as though we're given a jersey, that we're playing for a new team. Now, we put the jersey on. Yes, your name is on the back. You are still you. God has called you to be on his team, but it's the small lettering on the back, and you don't play for the name on the back. You play for the logo that's on the front. You wear his team colors, and we get to be a part of his work now in the world. We are marked by his name. Remember how many times name was repeated in our text today? That when we, we come to faith in Jesus, we're now a part of that lineage. We put on the jersey. We play for his team. We are marked by his name. Revelation 22.4, this promise of land that we heard of in our text, find its ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns. And it says it like this, they, that means every one of us who's put our trust in Jesus, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We're marked off. You are mine. James, in your baptism, that's what you're hearing now. You are mine. Marked with his name. Marked as his people. And so I ask you this morning, whose name are you marked by? Who are you playing for? May we be marked by his name. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, to know that he is still working as well. Let's pray together as the worship team comes. God, we thank you for this text, and and I particularly thank you that you give us the example of Moses with all of his sense of inadequacy, and you show us that you love to use people like him, and that means you love to use people like us that you have brought us into your story now through faith in Jesus. And that as we're marked off by your name, we get to be a part of your good work in the world now. So Lord, I just want to pray for each person here who does feel discouraged or disillusioned, maybe even having a hard time hearing good news because of it. Lord, I pray that they would rest in the knowledge that as our God, you are always working on our behalf. You never stop working for our good and for your glory. Amen.